Acts 15 is where uh, we will be looking today. And as I begin, I, I told you I got into this kind of interesting thought about math equations as I was looking through uh, Acts chapter 15, and, and really there's three stories here in Acts 15, three lessons that I, I want us to see that, that really have a lot to do with church leadership. They, they have a lot to do with, with how we structure and organize and get along together and, and what we're to do and, and what we're not to do being part of a church, being together as followers of Jesus Christ, seeking to live out the Great Commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. We see all of that here in Acts chapter 15. And so last week we had an equation that said Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that was the emphasis of our message last week. This week... I want us to see a, a, an equation that I thought of as I was looking at this and thinking about and praying about how to share these texts with you. And, uh, and there's a symbol there. You may or may not know what that symbol means. Who knows what that symbol means? You can just say it. Not equal to, right? It's the young people, right? <laughs> we, the older ones, we haven't seen this in years, right? But different is not equal to sin. Different is not equal to sin. And I came to this because I, as I read through this text, I remembered uh, back 23 years ago this summer now, in 2000, I had an incredible opportunity where I spent the summer in China, in rural China, middle of nowhere on the border of Myanmar, China. And when we arrived, there was a group of about six guys, and, and we had signed up with the International Mission Board to go and to help with, with gospel evangelism out in rural China, backpacking through the countryside, distributing Bibles, making connections. You know, it sounded like it was going to be this fun adventure trip. And when we showed up, the first thing that the missionary said when he got us all together is he, he looked at us and he said, boys... I want you to remember something. Different is not wrong. Different is different. Different does not equal sin. Different is different. And the reason that he told us that, we soon learned. Because the place where we went was very, very different. They were different in their religious practices. They were different in their family structures. They were very different in their food. And day after day, you would reach this point of frustration where you're like, what is wrong with these people? Don't they know better? And we had to remind ourselves over and over again, different isn't necessarily wrong. And the truth is, is that sometimes we have to remember that different isn't necessarily sin. Sometimes we like to elevate our personal convictions to the level of God's word. And you say, no, I wouldn't do that. Yes, you do. We all do. We all have certain things and certain traditions and certain ways about us that are very strong convictions. 
but it's not necessarily a command from the Lord. And so it's very important as we begin to think about this, what is sin? Not what is a sin, but what is sin? Have you ever thought about that? What is sin? There's a very simple answer to it. Sin is anything that transgresses God's word. Sin is anything that breaks God's command. Sin is anything where God has said, you shall do this or you shall not do this. And where we should have done something, we didn't do it. And where we should have not done something, we did it. That's what a sin is. Sin is not spilling milk. Mistakes aren't necessarily sin. And while God commands us how to live and and what to do, we in that space often have personal convictions as well that are very strong. But those personal convictions a lot of times aren't necessarily something that God says you must not do or you must do. They are personal convictions that we have developed because of our culture, because of our background, because of our tradition, because of our family, because of our experience, to where we say, this is what God's word says, and this is how I want to live this out. But we need to be careful and remember that different doesn't equal sin, necessarily. Does that make sense? Are you with me? All right, we have to remember that because there's always going to be individuals who have different convictions and often what they will try to do is they will try to use the Bible in such a way to make those convictions be binding upon you. Now this is where I come to this, the big issue that we read about last week. As we looked at our text uh, last week is, is the big issue that we saw was that the Jewish believers, the the believers who had previously been Jews, when they hear that the Gentiles are being saved, they are up in arms because they say they can't be getting saved because they haven't been circumcised and they're not fully keeping the law of Moses. That was the issue, right? That was the issue. And, And the answer, as we looked at Peter's response at the beginning of Acts 15, was this. We are saved By grace, not by works. We are saved by God's grace and not by works. Faith is what saves us, not the keeping of the law. Not the circumcision of the old covenant. In the new covenant, we are saved by grace in faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet there was this group that said, "Eh, But what about this and so we talked about that last week that's the main issue and and if you remember the answer that we came to last week is we can't have unity on essential matters that the that the, that the bible speaks to and individuals depart from that we can't just make up unity and we can't redefine salvation and we can't take important first priority things and say, oh, can't we all just get along? Let's, let's not worry about theology. Theology just makes people argue. We can't do that because when we do that, we lose the gospel. We lose the gospel message. We lose the gospel power and we ultimately can deceive ourselves 
into thinking that we're right with God when we very much are not. And so that's the setup for this passage, is we go from issues to where there can be no ground given to issues that have personal convictions to where we can say, follow your conscience. Do what's right according to what God has called you to. Do you see there's a difference between those two things? And what so often happens is that there's individuals who do not understand the difference between commands that God has given and preferences in how they live that out. And it becomes one thing so that we take preferences and we mix them with commands and then a, a lady would walk into a church wearing trousers instead of a dress and they would tell her that she's in sin. You think I'm joking? But do you see how that happened? You see how that happened? And so this text is very important because what can happen is, and, and what always happens, is there are individuals who elevate personal convictions to the level that they're at God's word. And then they try to impose personal convictions on that person. And, and that's part of what's here. And so there's these grand concessions that are made uh, about these cultural and these personal things, not to offend others, but also that we would make a distinction between what is a sin, breaking God's law, and what is an issue and an area of personal conviction that we can and should hold, but not necessarily demand that others hold in the same way? All right, look with me at the text. Look with me at the text. Chapter 15 of Acts, and I'll be able to begin reading in verse 12. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to, make, to take from them a people of his own name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. The remnant of mankind, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says to the Lord, who makes these things known from of old? Verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city the, those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 22. So then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barabbas, and Silas, leading, <clears throat> leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Brothers, both Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling to your minds, 
although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our name, for the sake of the, our Lord Jesus Christ, who have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered a letter, the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who, who were handling, <clears throat> who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after that, they had spent some time, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off by peace, off in peace by the brothers who had sent them off. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so here we see the result of the controversy that began uh, last week as we opened up to uh, Acts chapter 15. And again, just to, to reiterate, the issue was the, the council was called together. Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem because there were these individuals who were saying, you cannot be saved. The Gentiles are not being saved because they're not being circumcised and they're not keeping the law of Moses. They're not becoming Jews before they become Christians. Hey, that was the issue. And Peter was very clear he made a very powerful statement in, in, about salvation. If you remember back to verse 11, we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. And so he says all salvation, whether you come from a Jewish background, whether you come from a Gentile background, anyone who is saved after Jesus Christ has come, is saved by faith, by grace in Christ alone. Not through the law, not through the keeping of the law, not through the observation and the requirements of the law, but through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. And today as well, all who are saved are those who have simply trusted in Christ. For salvation is by grace alone not of works that no one can boast. Amen? So now, after saying this, Paul and Barnabas, they give a testimony similar to what Peter did, and they talk about uh, how they saw that God was genuinely saving the Gentiles, that you can't argue and say that they're not saved because we saw what happened, and we saw that as we looked through the previous chapter of Acts. And, and then it's very interesting because after they finish speaking, here in verse 12, um, we see that someone new steps up to make a pronouncement. James steps up. Now this James is not James the brother of John. We know that because he was murdered by Herod a few chapters ago in chapter 12. So who is 
this James? Who is this new James that we see that has an important role here in the book of Acts? This is the brother of Jesus. That's right. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And, and so it's an amazing testimony because he was not one of the apostles. In fact, the brothers of Jesus didn't seem to be believing until after the resurrection of Christ. And then they became disciples. And so James has gone from one who, who, wasn't a, who didn't believe Christ to redeemed by Christ to believing in Christ. And James has now become the pastor, the lead pastor, the chief elder, however you want to say it. He is the, he's the senior pastor at the church of Jerusalem. And church history will testify this, and, and James has an incredible pastor's heart. He leaves to us one of the greatest gifts in the Bible, the book of James. The book of James that talks about how faith is lived out, how genuine faith is lived out. And when you read that book and you think that he was a, a pastor, it all clicks and makes sense in his encouragements and how he practically puts together theology and life in a way to encourage us to live for the Lord. And so it's very interesting. This is a, a side note, but it's very interesting here. Who has the authority in this church? It's not the apostles. It's the pastor. Did you catch that? James is the one that comes up and he says, he, he, he gives an explanation. He says, here's my judgment and here's what we do. The apostles didn't say, oh, we were chosen by Jesus, and so you must follow our commands that we give to you. No, what we see, and this is a very Baptist principle. That's why I want to draw this out for a minute. This is a very Baptist principle. The, the New Testament shows that the, the highest authority in a local church, besides Jesus being over the local church, but that authority rests within the elders or the pastors of that church. And so even the apostles, even though they were evangelists and they went out and they went to set things in order, they themselves didn't then write to churches and say, I'm an apostle, you must do what I say. I'm a bishop, you must do what I say. In fact, we have just the opposite. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's an incident that needs addressed. Everybody's known about it, Paul's learned of it, and he writes to that church in 1 Corinthians and he says, he says I myself have written them off because of this great sin, but he says, you need to take care of this. You need to take care of this. And so we see one of the principles of what it means to be a Baptist is that we are congregationalists. Every church is individually responsible to Jesus Christ, and every church is individually led by pastors to whom which they see God's calling upon them and confirm for them to lead their church under the headship of Jesus Christ. And no other body, no other group has the authority to tell a local body what they're to do. It's a very Baptist principle, and I think it's one that we see modeled right here in Acts chapter 15 as the pastor is the one who stands up and says, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to handle this situation. This is the judgment that I have made about people who have gone out from this church and troubled other churches. Now, there's times as Baptists that we don't like that. There's times as Baptists that we wish that we could go and straighten everybody else out. But I have to tell you, there's another beautiful side of this. There's times as Baptists where we get to say, not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> my authority 
by God is here amongst this place, amongst these people. And we see that modeled again here in Scripture. That was a side note. (laughs) I hope it was a good one. Now, back to the text. He begins and, and he goes to the Scriptures to begin to give a judgment, to begin to give an understanding of what is happening and, and how um, they should respond to these individuals that have gone out and have tried to disturb those Gentile believers saying that they must first become Jews before they can become Christians. And he goes to Amos. You look at verses uh, 16 and 17. He'll, he'll read from Amos here. And then they decide to put a, a letter together and there's four things in particular Four convictions, four things that they want to bring out and highlight to the new Gentile believers that they would practice these things that they might build unity amongst the unbelieving Jews and unity against the Jews who have become believers in areas of personal conviction. And so we'll look at that. So there's, there, there's, there's a few lessons that I want us to look at as we break down what, what we see here And the first is this. It's really a reiteration from last week. The the first lesson is this. We cannot have unity without truth. We cannot have unity without truth. There are areas where the Bible has clearly spoken. There are areas of, of first priority, areas of the gospel, areas of things where the Bible is very, very clear that we must Hold the line, and there can be no concession, there can be no compromise on these areas, on these things. That was really the topic of last week. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. We cannot budge that salvation is by grace and not by works. So here we see James quotes from Amos chapter 9. This is what he says. He says, after this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who who, who makes these things known from old. What James is saying is that he's going back to uh, the prophets. He's going back to the book of Amos. And he is interpreting the prophecy that is given in the book of Amos as something that is being fulfilled within their day at their time. He's basically saying this. He's saying that that God has rebuilt, rebuilt his house and he has rebuilt his house with the Gentiles and that this was always his plan. He had done it from days of old. He's basically saying that in Christ has come the new covenant. In Christ has come the new covenant. As Jesus died and said, this is the new covenant that is in my blood, so there has been a definite change in how God expects man to relate to him and in how God relates to man. A new covenant. A covenant whereby we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's essentially what he's saying here. He goes to this Old Testament passage To say this, he he basically goes back to this old passage to say, to to reiterate the point that everyone had been making, God is doing something new, he's saving the Gentiles, and they are no longer, we are no longer saved by the law or the works of the law. 
Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You see that? That's why he uses this text. He he uses this text to again uh, remind us that there are uh, essentials in which we cannot compromise. He, He didn't try to be the pastor, as so many pastors are, um, that the, the, the biggest thing that they try to do is just make sure everyone can get along, right? We, 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 just, we, we can't be hard on truth. We can't be firm on things. There's, there's not things that, that we can say uh, we can't budge on because we don't want to make anyone upset. We don't want to make anybody upset. There's so many churches and denominations and groups that are ruled by this ungodly principle that we just can't make anyone upset. Well, guess what? Even if you try not to make people upset, you're going to make people upset, right? If, if you want an occupation where you don't make people upset, you sell ice cream. You sell ice cream. Unless you run out of a flavor and then a kid might cry. I don't know, all right? But the point here is that they said, no, this is unbudging. These Judaizers, these zealous people that are part of the group, they are wrong. And we cannot force this upon the Gentiles because if we were to, we would compromise the very nature of salvation. And there are things within the church, there are, there are priorities and issues. And so hear me out because this message is one that can be taken all wrong in all kinds of ways. I am not saying that there are not essentials in which we cannot move. But I am saying not everything is a hill to die on. Does that make sense? But there are hills on which we stand. When it comes to uh, matters of the gospel, we cannot yield. When it comes to issues of the inspiration and the authority and the divine nature of the scriptures, we cannot yield. If we yield on those, we're left with nothing. If the Bible's not true here, where is it true? Does that make sense? We, we have to hold firm on these things. We, we cannot yield on the nature of God, on who he is and who he has revealed himself as. That he is a, a triune being, God, in three equal, co, in three equal and co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We can't yield on those things because when we begin to, when those things begin to crumble, everything crumbles. Those are foundations upon which the faith is built. We must affirm both the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ. These are things that the Bible reveals to us, and, and there's a mystery to it. Sometimes we, we want to approach the Bible logically and say, well, that just can't be. Well, it is, because it says it. Does that make sense? These are issues and things on which I'm not saying that there can be any concessions. We must hold firm. We must hold firm to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that it was a substitution for sin. We, we must hold firm that, that Christ died and that Christ bodily rose again because when we begin to erode these concepts when we begin to erode these things we lose the very foundation of the gospel itself and so these are hills on which we stand and these are hills on which we're willing to die but not everything is that hill (laughs) and that's the issue that they deal with here so the, the first point is this We cannot have unity without truth. We can't give up everything. (laughs) 
We can't make concessions where God has spoken clearly. We must hold and teach and proclaim those things. But the second point is this. We can't have effectiveness without grace. We can't have effectiveness without grace. Uh, James sums up his point. He says, my judgment is we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn from God. And then he mentions four things. Four things that he is going to tell, that they're going to put in this letter, and that they're going to instruct the new Gentile believers. And four things, and we're going to look at three reasons why he has said those things. And the four things that we have here is this. First, is for them to abstain from things contaminated by idols, um, or sacrificed to idols. And so here's, here's culturally what that means. In the world in which the Gentiles lived... All of the idols were worshipped by local priests. Priests, they had priests that administered the the worship to those idols. And and all of those false gods required sacrifice of animals. And so the front door of the temple, you brought your animal in, and the back door of the temple was Bob's discount meats. Does that make sense? So, so, so animals coming in, they're being sacrificed. What do we do for them? Well, at the back door, we sell them. And in the Jewish mind, the idea of buying meat that was sacrificed to a god and then consuming it in your body made you completely undefiled and was completely unacceptable. You have to imagine that in the Gentile mind, For these Gentiles that were getting saved, they're like, look, that's Bob's Discount Meats. That's the best place to get ribs cheap. Are you with me? And so this became a big issue. This is a big issue that we see throughout the Bible. It's not so much a big issue now, but but you can see how it was such a big issue. The second and third prohibition that that are given here between uh, what, what James proclaims and then the letter that's put together is this. They say, to refrain from blood and to refrain from things that are strangled. Now, the, the issue here is that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, is God revealed um, these things. He, he forbid the strangling of animals to retain their blood and the eating of blood. Those things were, those things were forbidden for the Jewish people. They were food laws that that God had given to them. And and then what happens is, is that these Gentiles, they they grew up and this is their favorite dish. Are are you with me? Like, they don't think anything of it. They like haggis, right? I don't even remember what it is, but I remember it's a nasty thing. (laughs) Yeah, we we won't go there. But they like that. And so for for the Jews, this is like, ooh, gross, totally wrong. And for the Gentile believers, they're like, that's the way mama used to make it. Do you, do you see the, the contention that's, that's being brought up here? And then the last thing is a little bit different. He says to refrain from fornication. Now, fornication means any form of sexual relation outside of the covenant of marriage. So this would cover, uh, this would cover sex before marriage sex outside of marriage, 
any kind of sexual relations that isn't found in, within the, the bounds that God has given the gift to be exercised within a, a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And, and so he says, refrain from these. And so from these four prohibitions, I want to draw three principles that I think we can take from this text that are very important to, to us today as we think about God's word, God's law, our personal convictions, how we live this together, and how we live in such a way that we can have, be effective in our witness and we can remain bound to God by our conscience. All right, are you with me? The three lessons that I think that we can learn from this. First is don't intentionally offend the lost. Don't intentionally offend the lost. Paul goes into great length of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let, let me read this text for you. It's one that you'll know, but it, it fits right here with what we're saying. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those that are under the law, as under the law, that though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, Though not being without the law of God, but to those under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak, and I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Now that verse has been used all kinds of strange ways, but the general principle is this. Paul is saying, I have not done anything to offend unbelievers culturally that they might not listen to the gospel. He's kept the main thing, the main thing. And, and that's the principle that's at stake here, is that some matters need to be uh, set aside so that people can come to the Lord, and then that, that, that as they've come to the Lord, sanctification can take place. Let, let me give you a couple of examples. The first is this. Let's say you're trying to reach Muslims. You don't go to your, your Muslim neighbor and just start with the argument, do you know that man and woman are equal in their worth to God? You see what you've just did? You've just taken a, a, a cultural hot topic and you've just... The issue is not that. The issue is you need Jesus Christ. You have a Mormon friend. And, and your Mormon friend, um, he, he, you have a chance to witness to him. And, and you've been praying for this chance. And so here's your opening line as you want to share the gospel with your Mormon friend. So how many wives do you have? How does that conversation go? Right? You've started with the wrong things. You, you have sought to intentionally offend them. Now, are, are there truths in what you're saying? Yes. But you see, first and foremost, the issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jerk evangelism is not a good method. There's a lot of people that are really good at jerk evangelism, aren't they? They like to stand places with signs. They like to scream on megaphones, and they like to touch and hit every cultural topic to rile someone up. And the problem is, is that the effectiveness of this is not. 
the point that we have to emphasize is Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying to compromise on any issue of sin. But we have to realize that there are symptoms of sin and there is an issue of sin. Do you get that? There are symptoms of sin. People are sinners and they do sinful things because they are sinners. And so the symptoms aren't the primary issue because you can clean up the symptoms and they still be sinners. The issue is, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Have you believed in Christ? Have you repented of your sin? And have you trusted in him? And are you following Christ? Are you wanting to follow Christ? And that's where discipleship comes into play. That's where we begin as Christ commanded, go and make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. But we can't expect discipleship before we've had conversion. Does that make sense? And I think that's the principle that's here. I'm not saying compromise on the truth. Please hear me out. I'm not saying compromise on the truth. The truth is prudent, but, but, but we have to have effective and graceful concepts and ideas and approaches to people as Jesus does. He was full of grace and full of truth. And I think we see a lot of areas where individuals elevate cultural taboos, personal convictions, non-essential matters to the point to where it hinders sharing the gospel with others. The second principle that we have from this is silence your phones in church. No. Um, <laughs> you're all right, brother. The second principle is this. Don't intentionally offend believers. Don't intentionally offend. So don't intentionally offend unbelievers and don't intentionally offend believers. And Paul goes into this in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. If you want to write those two passages down and look at them, they are, are tremendously important for us to live out. And they're things that are often forgotten. Uh, but, but, but the point is this. The, the point is this. Paul, Paul writes to these, and, and the issues in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans chapter 14 all have to go back to these cultural taboos about food and drink and, and these things of worship and these cultural things. And, and Paul basically puts down this law. He puts down this law that says personal convictions are good. If God leads you to a personal conviction, that is a good thing. But if you try to force that personal conviction on someone else, that's a bad thing. And all are to live under the authority and the headship of Christ in such a way, and Paul concludes it in verse 12 of chapter 14 of Romans, and he says this, so that each of us will give an account for himself to God. And so there are things that we have personal convictions about. And often those ideas of personal convictions, we try to elevate to the idea of God's law. Let me give you an example, okay? I don't care for tattoos. I just, I don't know. I think, I think part of it is I have a fear of commitment. And so I don't want to live with that my whole life. I think part of it is, is that like I just, I, I think this generation is going to look hilarious at age 75 and 80. Uh, those things don't last. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I just, I don't know, it's a yuck thing for me. I don't, I, I, it, it just is. And it's a, it's a personal thing, it's a personal If you have it, I don't think you're sinning. 
But it would be very easy for me, and it has been very easy for some, to take a personal conviction and turn it into a matter of sin. Does that make sense? Are, are you with me here? In fact, and this is something that, that we got to be careful of, is there are those who have tried to read their Bible in such a way to say, oh, look, there it is. And it's not just about that. There are so many things that we have personal convictions are that those are good for that person. It's okay to have that conviction. It's okay to live that way before God. It's okay for you to say, for me personally, I think God made this temple right. It doesn't need any other artwork. But it's wrong for me to say, you shouldn't either. Now, you can do that with your kids while they're in your house. <laughs> Hear that? <laughs> you, you can set the rules for your family, but there comes a time where they're adults as well. And they live before God with their own conscience. And so it's wrong for you then to force your conscience upon them, and it's also wrong for them to force their conscience upon you. Are, are you with me? I think that's the principle that we're laying out here, that we're seeing. And, and it would be very easy for these Gentile Christians to go around to the, to the Jews and to say, hey, you know what, guys? This is a, a good piece of bacon. <laughs> and you know where I got it? <laughs> Discount Bob's Meats, right at the back door of the temple. I don't know why you all aren't eating there, you fools. <laughs> And that's kind of the principle where it's saying, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. That doesn't build unity amongst believers. That doesn't encourage one another in the Lord. And then the third principle is this. Don't allow the culture to dictate your morals. Don't allow the culture to dictate your morals. And this is where I think that the idea where they, they prohibit fornication to the Gentile believers comes from. It was clear that that was part of God's law, right? Like, it, it's clear that God has a design for marriage, what's in, what's out, and, and the bounds for sexual activity. That's very clear throughout the Old Testament. It's very clear in the New Testament. And yet, I think what was happening here is that there was such a temptation because the way that the Gentiles had been raised, because in that temple, not only did they sacrifice meat, but they did all kinds of other debauchery that was associated with their worship. And, and so I, I think you come into an issue where, you, because of their cultural background, that there would have been sin within the church and within those believers. And they might not have even known. You know, when churches stop teaching about what sin is, when, when, when we speak quiet, when we're quiet in discipleship about how we're to live before God, what we'll find is, is that, that, that people won't really know. I, I've met college people, that, college kids that are shocked when I suggest to them, that living together is a sin if they're not married. They, they've never been taught that. Believers, some that have grown up in church, they've never been taught that. Because their pastors were afraid to touch hot points in the scripture. And so they write here and they, they pull this one thing out of of their culture, and they say, look, this is something that, that is, you guys don't understand yet, that, that you're struggling with, that culturally is acceptable, but we have to hold the line, and we have to do what God says here. And there's a lot of things like that. There's a lot of things in our culture today that young people face, where the world is, is trying to tell them, it's okay. You know, Jesus never said that. That's Paul's 
opinion or redefining the Bible in such a way to to try to make what God prohibits permissible. That's not what I'm talking about here. There are those things where we say this is what God's word is and we must teach and do those things. So so those three principles I think are very important when we talk about personal convictions and and things like that is is that first of all we don't want to create a stumbling block for unbelievers on non-essential matters and especially matters of personal conviction. Second, We don't want to use our freedom in Christ in such a way that we flaunt it before others, try to force upon them our personal convictions, or try to force upon them that they must uh, follow or that they're wrong in the things that God has led us to. But at the same time, we must honor that which God has led us to. And then third, even if the culture says it's okay, we follow God in all things. Does that make sense? Does that help? Does that help you to think about and to to navigate those things? I love the conclusion here. It says that that Judas and Silas went off and accompanied Paul and Barnabas. They went back to Antioch. They told them of the letter. They, They spent time with them, and they all rejoiced. In verse 32, it says that they preached a lengthy message. I like that part. Okay? Just being biblical here. All right? And... And, and, and then, you know, they, they go on and, and they do this, and, and, but they stay with them and they teach them and they love them. And so we see discipleship here. We see them growing in the Lord. Friends, I know we live in a day where spiritual and moral compromise is all around us. We see denominations and churches and leaders becoming more like the world. We see them uh, vacillating and and renegotiating what God's word says and sometimes it makes us very hardened to the point to where we want to die on every hill I'd say within our own Southern Baptist Convention that I love so much right now we're facing issues of this we're facing issues of individuals that takes areas of there, there are real issues and then there's areas of personal conviction and they're elevating personal conviction where if you don't agree with me on every little thing on every little way then you're a heretic right we threw out the big h word you're a heretic no if you deny jesus christ as eternal with god you're a heretic do you see that and so we can't die on every hill but there are hills that we have to die on Different does not equal sin. We have to be mindful of what the Word of God is and where God has convicted us personally, how we live out and live according to Him. And in all things, we must seek to build unity and to build love. Pray with me.